Paul's out. <coughs> when Jenny and Pastor Tracy said they're still in need of 500 eggs, these are not real eggs. Please, whatever you do, do not bring 500 real eggs that need refrigeration. That, they're talking about the little plastic eggs that you buy at Hobby Lobby or places like that. 500 real eggs. What would we do with that, you know? I, if you do that, by the way, I would suggest that we all make deviled eggs out of them and have a high old time on Easter Sunday. That would be marvelous. I don't know why they call them devil eggs. Why don't they call them resurrection eggs? Something like that. We are in the book of Mark chapter 10. If you would like to turn there, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem in the closing weeks of his life, and he journeys through Judea and then crosses over the Jordan River into Gentile uh, Perea. Uh, he's moved about 65 miles now from Galilee and is walking steadily with his eyes on the cross. He knows what is before him. He's tried to tell his disciples several times before what awaits him. But they couldn't get past the idea that the Jewish Messiah, who was supposed to reign forever, how could he possibly die on a cross? But Jesus never predicted his death without predicting also his resurrection. But they just couldn't get their minds around that. How can we have a dead Messiah? How can he live forever? So they couldn't quite understand that there were some Jews that actually felt, well, there will be two Messiahs. One is the suffering Messiah, <coughs> excuse me, out of Isaiah uh, 53, and the other one would be a Messiah that would live forever. Others hyper-spiritualized the text and said, well, you know, the servant of the Lord and the suffering uh, servant of the Lord, that's, that's really Israel. Well, Israel didn't die for anybody's sins. Only Jesus did. Only Jesus did. Uh, there is a huge gap between uh, chapters 9 and Luke. Chapter 9 wedges in between Mark 9 and, and 10. Uh, and it fills up a full third of the gospel of Luke. But we're not here to cover that today, but the, the gospel that is before us. Now, you'll remember we closed off last week with Jesus trying to tell his disciples, I tell you the truth, no one who has left homes or brothers, sisters, mother, father, or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with them persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. I'm sure the disciples were wondering, how are you going to multiply mothers, fathers, and sisters, and brothers to me? How large is the body of Christ today? It spans the globe, and our brothers and sisters and spiritual mothers and fathers far eclipse any that we had regarding our biological lineage. And then Jesus said something curious that they failed to understand in verse 31 of Mark chapter 10. But many who are first, that is in this life, in this world, will be last in the kingdom, and the last shall be first. There is such striving in this world today to be first at everything. That's why we watch the Olympics. We don't care who finishes third, fifth, or 20th. We're looking to see who wins, who's the best, who's the biggest, who's the brightest. And we seem to be enamored with that sort of, of thinking. Verse 32 records, as they were on their way towards Jerusalem, that says up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is higher in elevation 
So it's an uphill climb. With Jesus leading the way, don't you love that picture? The shepherd leading his sheep. I want him to lead me every step of the rest of life's journey. Ask him to do that, and he will. If you fail to ask him to do that, all bets are off. Ask him to lead you. Ask him to have you turn to the left or the right according to his perfect will. Ask him to, to show you the path wherein you should walk. Jesus, leading the way, his disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. There's a whole lot of mixed feelings as to why people were following the Lord. Why do you follow the Lord? Is it fear? Oh, I'm just scared to death of hell, so I'd, I'm going to follow the Lord. Or are you scared to death of dying and clinging to Jesus out of sheer desperation? Why, why do you follow the Lord? You follow the Lord because He's the Lord, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Prince? Yes. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. He had done this many times before. They had failed to grasp the lesson. But in the final weeks of Jesus' life, he's recommitting himself to the cross, asking them to recommit themselves to him as the one who would bear their cross, die for their sins, and then after three days be raised from the dead. But they just couldn't get their minds around that. We're going up to Jerusalem, verse 33 records, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. You have to understand this is the backdrop as Jesus is moving towards that first Easter. We have for 2,000 years now been looking at the celebrations that precede uh, Easter and Passover and a wide variety of denominations do all sorts of different things ramping up to that Easter Sunday. In fact, even the term Easter has pagan connotations to it and more more accurately should be described as the resurrection of Jesus from the dead day. The reason that's not on your calendar is it's too many words. It doesn't fit. So they just call it Easter. The world calls it Easter, which has, like I said, pagan connotations. We understand Easter is Jesus. It's Him risen from the dead. Him willing to pay the price that you and I couldn't. You've never died for anybody's sins. You would have to be able to die for your own sins because God's standard of getting any of us into heaven is perfection. And unless I'm wrong, none of us in this room are perfect except in Christ Jesus. You can't get there hoping your good deeds outweigh your bad. If there is one bad deed from the womb to the tomb in your life, you forfeit heaven if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, the one who paid the price for your sins. That requires surrender. That requires you and I to come to the point of submission. Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I know you died on the cross for my sins. If Jesus had come to earth and you were the only person on earth that had ever sinned, understand he'd have still gone to the cross. That's how much he loves you. 
for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why I follow Jesus. His love drew me. I wasn't scared of how hot hell was or the pain of death. That didn't bother me at all. But love, oh, that broke me like a twig in the fall. He loved me. I mean, let's be honest. Some of you don't even love yourselves. Some of you suffer from self-worth issues because perhaps you've forgotten that the king of the universe loved you so much, just as you are, that he was willing to die for you. That's why we should serve him out of sheer gratitude. I don't try to earn his approval so I can be saved. I try to earn his approval because he's already given me his approval. I just want to work out the rest of my life for his glory and his praise and honor. I want to live a life of surrender. The disciples never quite got that. So Jesus is very pointed in in what he points out to them. He says, had said, the first will be last and last will be first. So Jesus is saying now then in verse 32, predicting his upcoming suffering and resurrection, I choose to make myself last. I will become the servant of every single person on this planet. I will give my life in service to everybody else. Isn't that what we should do? Starting with submitting ourselves to to the Lord Jesus Christ, making ourselves servants to Him, serving Him and Him alone, not the things of this world. Your flesh will pull you towards the way of the world. The Spirit will always pull you in the direction of Christ Jesus. And which direction you choose daily depends on which master you want to serve. Can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You'll love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. You can't love the world and say that you love God. You can't do that. Choose you this day whom you will serve and why. And if you make the choice to serve him, please, in these Laodicean and lukewarm last days, choose to do it with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't do it flippantly or half-heartedly. Serve him with everything that is within you. He gave everything to save you. Why would we not give him everything that we are and ever hope to be? Why would we not surrender everything to whom? To him who died for us. Look at verse 35, if you will. Not having quite understood this, the other gospels tell us, they keep on moving on their journey. Verse 35 Jesus had just said the first will be last and the last will be first. So what do they do? Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Does that sound like a loaded question to you? I mean, can you imagine your five-year-old coming to you and saying, Mommy, I want you to do whatever I ask of you, okay? (laughs) <laughs> you know what's coming. It's going to be a real bad question that they ask you. It's always a loaded question that stems from a fleshly nature. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Here's the mindset of many Christians that Jesus is hidden in a genie's bottle, and all you got to do is rub the bottle and polish the outside, and out comes Jesus and to grant you three wishes. 
So most of our prayer life looks like this. I want you to do this for me. I want you to do that for me. And by the way, if I could win the lottery, that wouldn't hurt either. So, you know, any of these things would be great. Give me that promotion at work. Get me that raise. Give me this. I want a bigger house, a fancier car. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Do you see how self-centered that is? To where all we do is come to God with a shopping list of wants? How about we say, what do you want? What do you want to do in, on, and through me today? What would you want, Lord? Maybe that's a better way to, to think of our, our prayer life instead of asking loaded questions. Lord, do this for me, please. Do that for me, please. Give me whatever I'm asking for, Lord. Earlier, the disciples had asked Jesus, <laughs> who... Amongst them, they were thinking of themselves. Of us 12 guys that are really like the head honchos in this thing, which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'm sure Peter was going, yeah, it's me, hands down. I mean, I'm the guy who walked on the water. I mean, not very far, granted, but I walked on the water. None of you guys did. I was up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. Now, two of these guys that missed that lesson on humility are asking, uh, where do we stand in the kingdom of God? Any chance we could be number one and number two? What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. The positions of honor, left and right. We want to sit closest to you, Lord Jesus. We want to be highest, best, the most looked up to. They, disciples, I think like us, sometimes we can be way too concerned with status or prestige or self-importance or rank and priority. These things are common in the world today. Everybody strives to climb that ladder of success. And there is nobody in this sinful fallen world besides God's children that isn't looking out for anybody except number one. Today, I get, I get asked silly questions that sound remarkably like the disciples' question here. Well, how many views on YouTube did you get? Do you have your own YouTube channel yet? How many subscribers on your channel? How many likes? How many followers? How many people are watching Almighty You? How many listen to my podcast? How many subscribers do I have? Who's the biggest, the greatest, the fastest, the most successful, the richest, the most influential. These are not questions that should concern the child of God in any degree. These things are irrelevant if you think kingdom thoughts. They don't matter to you. What does matter? Being the servant of all. Like Jesus was, he set the example. Well, how many radio listeners do you have? How many are tuning into your online broadcast of your church? I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't care. I'm glad to have the opportunity to minister any way we can in this church. But I have no interest in name recognition. I have had pastors tell me, you know, I just can't go anywhere anymore because people see me and they just want to come up and talk to me or rub my arm or get my signature or something. I'm going, and they're pastors? Really? 
Every pastor's conference nearly that I've ever gone to in my life, number one question is, well, how big's your church? Like that matters in the kingdom of heaven? What a carnal question, and yet it is asked at many, many, many pastors' get-togethers. How many big church speaking engagements do you get, pastor? Who do you know who church I preached at last Sunday? Oh, it's blah, 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 famous guy on TV's church. Oh, aren't you impressed? <sighs> Peacocks fanning their feathers. Are you a name dropper? I know so-and-so. Do you know who I got my picture taken with? I went to this thing, and there was some celebrity. I got my picture taken with this celebrity, i.e., you didn't, so I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. It's all about I, me, and my in our flesh. We tend to be so hedonistic and narcissistic. What do those words mean? They're big words, but it's simple concepts. Hedonistic means you are obsessed with pleasure and entertainment. That runs rife throughout the world today. The world is obsessed with pleasure and entertainment and obsessed with self and self-image, and they tie their self-worth to that image, whether it's true or not. It's an image that they've created because they have this desire to be liked and loved and accepted. We tend to, in our flesh, to be so overly concerned with who's the greatest just like the disciples did, and the question had come up just the very chapter before, back in chapter 9, verse 33, well, which one of us is going to be greatest? Well, what made him think it was going to be one of them? Maybe it was somebody outside the 12. Well, Pastor Jim, who's going to be the greatest in your church? Well, maybe the greatest in the kingdom of heaven isn't anyone in my church at all or myself. Maybe it's others. Ego, narcissism, and ideas of greatness and self-importance have no place in the kingdom of heaven. That's in diametrical opposition to this whole concept of servanthood. Jesus said, you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In other words, that, that's a fairly noble calling. You want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then be the servant of all. Everybody wants to be served today, but nobody wants to serve. They want to come to events where entertainment is provided for them, but if asking somebody to work, well, that's a, sometimes a whole different deal. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said in verse 36. I would not have responded that way. <clears throat> Jesus is so patient, so kind. They come up to him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. I wouldn't have done that. I just said, you beanheads, what's the matter with you guys? I, sit down in a row so I can smack each one of you as I go by. Don't, don't you understand? We had this lesson last week in chapter 9. What, what? Don't you? You can just. And Jesus has only got weeks to live. And these guys still after three years are clueless. How long have you been a Christian? How, to, how great a servant are you in your house, in your workplace, where, wherever you find yourself? Are you a servant? Do you have a servant mentality? Do you actually see others as greater than yourself? That's true humility. 
It's not chasing after names or titles or recognition. The world chases after those things, and they mean absolutely nothing. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, when he came to earth, he emptied himself. I mean, if there was anybody that should have been a name dropper, it should have been Jesus. I know God. God, in fact, God is my Father. Who's your Father? How do you trump that one? You can't. But Jesus never did that. He was never a guy to rub other people's noses in. He is so patient, so kind. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? If Jesus was right here standing in front of you this morning, what do you want me to do for you? Before you answer quickly, I would encourage you to pause for just a moment, pray hard, and make sure your answer is born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. What do you want me to do for you? I have filled in that blank several times over the course of my life. Here's what I want Jesus to do for me. I want him to plant in me the Father's perfect will, giving me the power, strength, wisdom, and knowledge to do it till I die. Or he called me home. Or the rapture occurs. That's what I want. I want you, Lord Jesus, to show me what your will is, your plan, your purpose is for me. I want you to make me the godliest man I can be. I want you to remind me every single day how desperately I need you. That's what I want you to do for me. It's not about me. Lord, would you, would you heal my son? Lord, Lord, would you take care of this person? Would you watch over this precious church and all the people that call it their home? If your prayer life is consumed with nothing but selfish prayers, reevaluate your walk with the Lord. Maybe a little more intimacy and a little more time spent with him might change your worldview as to what you should pray about. It shouldn't look like a shopping list of personal needs, wants, and desires. It should be equipping you to serve others because that will make you greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Things to think about. A second thought that occurs to me is if you are indeed serving, well, Pastor Jim told me last week I had to serve. If I was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, so here I am in Sunday school serving. I hate it, but I'm serving. Don't bother. That's not serving. If you can't do it with a good heart, a good attitude, if you can't do it in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience, don't even do it at all. God has not called whiners, wimps, and complainers to serve in His church. So don't do that. Come and say, not my will but thine be done. Ask Him to make you a servant with a servant's heart. But in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord. Isn't that what Scripture says? Don't whine, don't complain, don't murmur, don't grumble. We all could do that. Nobody in this room has a perfect life going on. So you can choose to complain about what God has allowed in your life. You'll constantly be trapped in that loop spiritual defeat because it's narcissistic. It's all about me. It's all about my pain, my suffering. I'm not saying those things aren't real, but they are not priority in my life. That's why God made ibuprofen. Take 
to ibuprofen, come back to the throne of grace, give it to God. He's got this. He loves you. Remember when Paul came and, and three times it says in 2 Corinthians 12, three times he says, I asked the Lord to heal me. And God said, if I can paraphrase, no. We don't like that answer, do we? We pray because we want God to say yes. Lord, grant us whatever it is we ask of you. Hmm. We pray because we want him to say yes. But the fact of the matter is sometimes it's in our best interest for him to say no. For reasons and purposes you don't understand. You're not called to understand. You're called to endure patiently. That means without complaint. God has allowed difficulties in all of our lives, some far worse than others. But the Bible says that these things are meant to teach us things from God. It's not meant to make us bitter complainers. These things, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God or call him for his purposes. That means everything that you and I go through, he'll use for his glory. Your biggest mistake is trying to figure out what is he doing. Don't. Just go with it. Just say, God, glorify yourself in whatever I'm going through, whether it's deprivation or physical illness, heartbreak, heartache, issues in the family, job issues. Just, God, whatever you do, I don't understand what you're doing. You, know, you want to confess that right up front. I don't understand what you're doing. God said in the Old Testament, he said, why are you trying to figure me out and what I'm doing? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your understanding. It's not my understanding. My ways are so much higher than yours. Like the disciples, if I explained it to you, you still wouldn't get it. But he's working. He's moving. We always want him to move and, and work in positive ways that feel good, make us happy. It's like going to dessert in a fancy restaurant. You know, ooh, the, the creme brulee. Ooh, yeah, that's what I want. And then sometimes we... Get sour cabbage instead. <laughs> and you wonder, what are you doing, Lord? Shh. Shh. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It doesn't say understand. It doesn't say try to figure him out. Faith is what is required. Without faith, you will always demand an answer of the Almighty God. Why? Is this happening to me? Like it never happened to anybody in the history of the planet, right? You're the first one that ever had to go through what you're going through this morning. God is sufficient. What, isn't that what God told Paul? Paul, I'm not going to heal you because my, my grace is sufficient. Paul accepted that, but many of us here this morning would not or have not. Best prayer, what do you want me to do for you, asks the Lord. I want your perfect will. That's all I want. Whatever it is, whatever it entails, whether it's suffering, whether it's being a servant, whether it's making this decision or that decision, or taking this job, or Lord, I just, I want your perfect will. There is no better prayer. Isn't that what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He didn't pray, you know, Lord, what I really want, it, you know, okay, I'm done here. Just fill out my shopping cart. I'll be good. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, he said. 
That's surrender. That's how you got saved. That's where you're supposed to stay. Humble, childlike, didn't Jesus? Just last, in last week's study, he said, greatest in the kingdom of heaven, be a child. Be childlike, not childish. You know there's a world of difference between the two, right? Childish says, Lord, we want you to give us whatever we ask for. That's childish. Childlike, I love you, I trust you. You're my heavenly Father. You got me under your arm. It's going to be good. You'll be fine. We'll get through this. I surrender all. We sang in last week or week before service. I surrender all, but I wonder, do we? Easy to sing the words, isn't it? It's harder to do the deed. You got to give it all to Jesus on a pretty much daily basis. Have you noticed that? Otherwise, you're going to worry yourself to death. You're going to fret and frazzle and worry. You're going to call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. Oh, Pastor, I'm going to panic. Have you asked God into the situation? No, so he called you. <laughs> Kathy, it's for you. <laughs> oh, well, Jesus, Jesus is so patient as he answers his disciples. I, I just love it. They want to sit on either side of verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. You don't have any idea of what you're talking about. Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I drink? Or can, be, can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Yeah, sure, whatever. We can do it. Of course, if you can do it, we can do it. Jesus is so patient. He asks them in terms they don't quite understand at this point. Are you going to, are you able to drink from the same cup of suffering that I am about to drink? As Jesus asked the Father, if possible, take this cup of suffering from him in Matthew 26. The cup is a symbol of deep sorrow, suffering, humiliation, agony, and crucifixion. You, you say you want to meet my, my disciples and follow in my footsteps. Are you ready to drink the cup for, uh, that I'm drinking from? Or on to go to this deathly baptism, his death and burial and resurrection? That's what baptism pictures. Are you willing to die for Jesus? Are you willing to live for Jesus? Perhaps is the more important issue. And they flippantly answer, sure, sure, yeah, we can do that. We're willing to suffer. Nobody suffers well. Nobody. When we get sick, we don't like it. When we have a chronic or debilitating illness, it is difficult to stay on top of that mentally. And every moment of every day, we've got to give that to the Lord. Give that to the Lord. What Jesus is really asking, can you take upon yourselves the sins of the world? No. No. We absolutely cannot do that. But what was their self-confident response of James and John, who had just come down the man of transfiguration? Yeah, sure. That's why Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. The cross is a call to come and die. Die to everything in this world. Baptism speaks of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, as does our baptism. That's why we practice total biblical immersion. It's that way in the Bible. You know, it says that John was baptizing at, at Salem near Anon because there was much water. Nobody was sprinkling anybody. It was a complete immersion. What a picture of death. 
I'm dying with Jesus. I'm identifying with his death for me. I'm rising up out of the water like his resurrection is pictured in. And I'm walking in newness of life, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, perfectly pictured. Leave all of your sins back behind you in, in the tub. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a public identification, though, on a very intimate and personal level. I just want to identify myself with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It's not required for your salvation. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll see me in paradise. And we have no record of his being baptized as a Christian at all. Yet Jesus guaranteed he was going to be in heaven with him. It doesn't save you. It's what you do once you're saved. As a public declaration of your faith in Christ Jesus, you should be baptized. But your eternal destiny doesn't hang on it. Flippantly. Oh, such a flippant response. In verse 39 of the Psalm, sure we can. we can. We can do all things by ourselves, right? Isn't that what Scripture says? I can do all things through self-effort. It's not what it says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Jesus is the answer when my strength fades. His is right there. Jesus said, apart, me, apart from me, you can do nothing. But these guys said, no, we can do this. They will do that. They will face their own persecutions and pains and sufferings and early deaths. Despite their lack of understanding, so patiently Jesus says, you will indeed drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized. But to sit at my right hand, verse 40, or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. The Father will decide who sits where. Until we get to heaven, always take the last seat. I went to a pastor's conference many, many years ago. We, we were on a speaking platform with, with some really well-known people. And when they filed us out of the, the ready room, um, I, just, I knew that all the keynote speakers and the important guys were all sitting on the front row of this thing. Uh, so I, I chose the last row because Jesus said to. So I'm sitting on the last row, you know. Jesus had told a parable, you know, don't put yourself in a position of honor because if the host of the banquet comes along and sees you sitting where you're not supposed to, he's going to ask you to get up and, and move elsewhere. So take the last seat in the house. So I, I was back there, and a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, decided to sit up front because he wanted to hobnob with the important guys, the guys that the people came to see at this huge event. And I thought to myself, sitting on the back row, you know, 20 rows in back row, I said, this is not going to end well. And they tapped him on the shoulder after a while and said, we need you to move. The front seats are for the important guys up here, not you. So, take, you know, get out of here. And he was publicly humiliated in front of 15,000 people. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I, I just, just take the last row. Don't, don't put yourself in a place where you want to be exalted and sit next to the important people. Don't do that. The Father grants those assignments, Jesus said there in verse 40. <clears throat> Can I tell you, I don't care where I sit in heaven, I'm just happy to be there. I'm just happy to be there. I'd, like David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in my father's house than a king down here. Yeah, for sure. I'm just glad I'm going to heaven. He knows where he wants to sit me. That's fine. That's his business, not mine. My job is to serve him. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Why? Because they hadn't thought of it first. 
They wanted to be first. <laughs> they, they're jealous, man. You ask him what? If you, why, you, you know, it should, it should be me sitting up there on the left or the right. So they're indignant. <laughs> they wish they'd have thought of the question first. They wanted to be first. They were jealous they hadn't thought of it first. And Jesus called them together and says, time for a little group therapy here. You guys are obviously not understanding. Uh, Jesus is looking at the cross at Jerusalem, and he's going, you guys still don't get it, do you? You still don't get it, do you? I want to give you a little insight into pastors for just a moment. I've known many, 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 a wonderful, wonderful pastor. A pastor's greatest frustration is they don't get it yet. I've been preaching servanthood for 35 years, but they just don't get it yet. I have to take those frustrations, as all pastors do, and give that to the Lord. We're living in the last days. These are perilous times that we're looking at, difficult for many of us. I, I understand that, and I sympathize with that greatly. I really do. But I just want you to get this. If you don't personalize these lessons, there's no point in ever opening your Bible or surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. So every time we come together, what I need from you is a fresh commitment to actually do it. Be a servant. Raise your right hand. Raise your right hand, please. Slackers. You, Dave, raise your right hand. Sally, got them up? Everybody got them up? We're on TV. You don't want people to see you with your hand down. Say this after me. I commit myself to God's purposes and to be His servant. In Jesus' name, amen. He saw that. He saw that. That's what makes us a successful people of God, when we just submit ourselves to His will. It may not always be pleasant. He has carried me through many a trial in my life, but we're still here by the grace of God. He's been wonderfully gracious to each one of us. I, I can find nothing to complain about at all. The ten become indignant with James and John. Verse 42, the, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That shouldn't be your goal. And their high officials exercise authority over them. They're the guys with the names and titles and badges. You don't want to be doing that. That's the way the world acts. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave, a doulos, a bondservant forever for all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He takes his disciples to school again. He is so patient. He is so patient with his disciples, and he is each one of us. Finally, we reach this portion where blind Bartimaeus receives his sight. Bartimaeus is at Jericho, just a stone's throw from Jerusalem. 
the first place that was conquered in Israel's conquest in the Promised Land some 1,400 plus years before. The city of Palms, beautiful, beautiful city. These date palms are all over the place even to the present day. Uh, in, a, in just a short time from now, people will be stripping the branches off of those trees in Jericho to pave the path that Jesus on donkey back walks coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Bartimaeus, his son names, means uh, son of Timaeus. Tomao is the Greek term for honor. Honor, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice name. This man has a desperate need. Verse 46, as they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples gathered with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. They weren't able to work. They had no social service programs for, for the blind back then, no social assistance programs. They were, you had to beg because that's all you could do. And verse 47, when he began to hear it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. <clears throat> have you ever been next to somebody in a crowd then they started shouting out like that? And you just want to hush them. Shh, shh, would you be quiet? In a movie theater, turn your phone off. Stop shouting or talking. And we, we, we don't like that so much. But he began shouting at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of David. Son of David's a title that acknowledges Jesus is the Messiah. He believes that. He is the son of Jesse. He is the son of David, the son of the living God. And you are able to have mercy on me. His need is desperate. I'm sure he'd been to the doctors, and nobody could do anything about his pain, his suffering, his infirmity. Here's a lesson in this for anybody who's ever experienced any serious infirmity. Cry out to God and continuously continue to cry out to God. That's what this man's doing. God said that we would find him when we'd seek him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Remember that out of Jeremiah 29? God said, you do that, you'll find me. Well, that's what Bartimaeus is doing right here. And at the top of his voice, he doesn't know the next time Jesus is going to be in town. He's a blind man. He can't make his way around quickly anywhere. He may not ever have the chance to see Jesus again. So with no thought of embarrassment or humiliation, he just begins bellowing at the top of his voice. It's like the person that sits next to you in praise and worship and sings at the top of their voice but can't carry a tune in a bucket. And you're, and you're just singing. And then the person next to you, oh, to Jesus, you know, and they're, they're shouting out and lifting their hands, and you're going, you know, I kind of thought we weren't a charismatic church. Well, we are. We are that we believe in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit of God, and some express them more de deliberately than you may feel comfortable doing. Some have a more desperate need than you might. Respect that. <clears throat> no shame this man felt. No, no thought for other, others thought of him. There was no embarrassment. He's just earnestly seeking the only one that can do anyone, anything about his condition. No one else can help it. You have a need this morning that nobody else but Jesus can meet. You've been to the doctors. You've been to the lawyers. You've tried suing. You've asked for advice. You've tried every homeopathic remedy known to the Internet for 40 years, and you've come up empty-handed. 
Jesus is the only one that can do anything about our condition. It starts with salvation. My greatest need is to be saved from my sins. Jesus is the only one that could touch him, that could heal him, that could save him, and his need is desperate. Verse 47, so when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. He didn't care. He would not be silenced. He would not be embarrassed into silence. And they all told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Isn't that our greatest need? It's not a physical healing. It's the strength to get through what we're going through. That's what grace is. That's what mercy is. It's not to deliver you out of whatever you're facing. We often say, think that, God, do this for me. Do that for me. Grace and mercy is God giving us the strength when we call upon Him to see us through what we're facing. It's long-term. This is an evil and sinful world. It has its impact on all of us. Where do you turn when your frustration builds to the point of explosion? Turn to the only one that can do anything about your situation. It is Jesus, and He loves you so much. So Jesus stopped. Here's the fascinating thing to me. Jesus let this guy bellow for a fair amount of time. And I'm sure Jesus is just, he stopped in the road when he hears this guy hollering and bellowing after him. And in my mind's eye, I just see Jesus grinning ear to ear, thinking, that guy's got more faith than my own disciples. Wow. Maybe that's soaked in just for a minute or two into the disciples themselves. We're busy arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. This guy's a blind guy. Has a desperate need that we've never had. People are asking him to shut up all around him and he won't be silenced. And I'll bet the disciples are sitting there thinking, what, what's going on? What's Jesus going to do? And this guy just keep bellowing. Keep, the more he bellows, I see the smile on Jesus' face just broadening. Jesus going, I love that guy. I just love that guy. You, you guys hear him? Don't you love that guy? I mean, he's so enthusiastic. He is so desperate in his need. He's crying out to the living God. He's crying out to the Son of God. It is everything. And I, I, I know Jesus was smiling. <laughs> so, verse 49, so they called to the blind man, cheer up, get on your feet. He's calling you and throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet. And came to Jesus, underline this, what do you want me to do for you? Hmm. He had just said that to his 12 disciples who asked with carnal reasoning who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the one the left, right-hand seats. Jesus asked the same question to this guy. Now, how would you answer that question? Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Suppose Jesus was here asking you that question this morning. How would you answer him, carnally or spiritually? Would you be concerned with self or be asking for something for others? Riches or for God's perfect will? 
even if it meant poverty and suffering? Would you again give your life to Jesus Christ if you knew that it meant a lifetime of pain and suffering and personal hardship? Would you still have accepted Jesus Christ? Would you still serve him? Why do we serve him? It asks that question again. Suppose we were, had a, a life of want and constant need. Is God sufficient? Absolutely he is. What do you want me to do for you? It's an obvious question. The guy's blind. People around the blind guy are probably thinking, dude, the answer is, yeah, he's got the white stick. Come on. What, you're asking him what he wants you to do for him? Really? It's a spiritual question of depth. What is your greatest need, buddy? It's not your blindness. Your greatest need is not what you think it is this morning. Your greatest need is Jesus. First, now, forever, and foremost. Your greatest need is not healing. It's not curing your blindness except your spiritual blindness. For that, you have to bow the knee and get saved. Ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior. <clears throat> this poor blind man, I, I feel for him. The blind man said to him, Rabbi, I just want to see. And then Jesus replied in verse 52, Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the way. Faith is everything in the kingdom of God. Complaining doesn't get you a quarter of an inch closer to God. Murmuring, grumbling about personal uh, circumstance or hardship, we all endure those things. and None of us are exempt from them. But faith, verse 52, is everything no doubt, no worry, no anxiety, no fretfulness. Without faith, Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God. Faith, it's everything. Faith in Him, not self-sin, circumstances, those things, they mean nothing. Your faith has healed you. There are other times that Jesus healed people and faith had nothing to do with it. There was a guy lowered through a roof one time, a paralyzed guy, and his friends let him down by four ropes on this mat, busting through the guy's roof and, and dropping him down. I'm sure the house owner was going, what are you doing? It's my house. And you just made a big hole in the front? And the guy's lowered through the roof. And what did Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure everybody's saying, that's not why he's here. Hey, can't you see that he's blind? Can't you see this guy is paralyzed? Yep, that's not his greatest need. Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus said that in response to the four guys that on the roof had lowered him down by the ropes. It said Jesus saw their faith, not the guy on the mat. He responds to their faith. Oh, if we can get him down, Jesus will heal him. I know he will. He is the son of God. He can do this, man. Let's do that. And they were so earnest in the exercise of their faith, they believed digging through this guy's roof and incurring a debt of a couple of thousand dollars to repair it was chump change if he, this guy gets in touch with Jesus. Jesus can meet his deepest need. Then he says something that surprised him all. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, who can forgive sins but God? Ta-da! Guess who's God? Sorry. Burst your bubble. They had a struggle with that. Jesus predicts his death again, but the disciples slow to understand. 
how a Messiah who was to rule forever can die. The Bible commands this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I want to write this down. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding. That's a command in the Hebrew. Lean not upon your own understanding. Why, God, are you doing this? Lean not upon your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your path. Doesn't mean it'll be comfortable from that point forward or you won't run into any hardship or tribulation, but it means that God has heard your prayers and He is responding. Sometimes when you ask Him to do something, He'll say, no, it's not in your best interests. Why? I don't understand. Ta-da. He said, do not lean upon your own understanding. But most people would like to take a, a blackout pen to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Do not lean upon your own understanding. Because the number one thing I hear from people going through hardship is, I don't understand. There's a part of me that says, how long have you been in this church? I mean, I've only quoted Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 about, without exaggeration, maybe 100 million, billion, trillion times. And yet you still don't get it. And then Jesus says, this is a teaching moment. Just share it with them again. Do not lean upon your own understanding. That is the tendency of our flesh. But secondly, Jesus addresses this whole issue with this carnal desire, this obsession to get ahead, to be popular. Likes and dislikes. And oh, I'm so sad I'm suicidal because somebody unfriended me. Get a life. Are you serious? I want to be first. I want to be best. Most hits and most likes. Be a servant. First of Christ and then of everybody else around you. And do it without complaint, please. Do it without complaint. That carries great eternal reward. And then the blind receiving their sight here with Bartimaeus, that, that always... That always blesses me because Isaiah had prophesied 750 years before Jesus was born that Messiah would give sight to the blind, allow the lame to walk. That was prophesied. That's exactly what the Messiah would do. Everybody at this point should have said, Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, who? nobody else is doing this. The religious leaders aren't doing it. The rabbis, the teachers, the law, the Pharisees, they're, they're not healing anybody. But Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God, and blind receive their sight. We go through this world not understanding a lot of things. We walk about like we were the blind man. I don't understand. We got the white stick out there tapping, trying to find our way, and all God is asking you and I to do is to call upon him. Cry out to him earnestly. He'll see you. He will meet you where you're at. He'll give you the strength to get you through what you're going through. He may even heal you. Ask for sure. Receive what comes from his gracious hand. Remember that song of John Newton, Amazing Grace? It is the single most recorded and sung song in all of the history of music. Did you know that? Never been a song more recorded, more done, more played, more sung than John Newton's amazing grace. There's that line in your I once was blind, but now I see. He wasn't talking about physical blindness. John Newton used to be the captain of a slave trading ship. He was a pirate involved in illegal trade. And God got a hold of him, convicted him of his sin. He was a broken man. 
wrote Amazing Grace wrote eight verses to Amazing Grace. For such a wretch as I is how he described himself. Paul said he was the chief among sinners, and John Newton said, no, sorry, Paul, I am. I am. I was blind, but now I see. But faith is everything. Believing, faith, believing in God, believing in Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, the one who died for you, these things you have to believe. That's exercising your faith. People say, well, I don't know how to increase my faith. Believe the facts. It's not the facts that can save you. Facts are facts whether you receive them and accept them or not. I can preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the unsaved, but then it's up to them as to whether they will believe that or not. I can explain to people, it's as real as George Washington crossing the Delaware River on Christmas Day of 1776 and attacking the Hessian camp and catching them by surprise. It factually, actually, and historically happened. The same thing with the resurrection. You can prove it. It happened. But the facts won't change you. But a changed heart will. As you think, Jesus... I just need to surrender everything. I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that your testimony and mine? I was once blind, but now I see. I do understand spiritual truth. And there is that song that we used to sing back a long time ago when I first got saved. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Isn't it simple? Trust and obey. With that, can we stand and close in prayer, please? Read ahead. The triumphal entry is next week. Wow. I just love that. And the city of Palms will come to the forefront once again as people then, now uh, violate the ecological movement of their day and strip a bunch of branches off the trees, green thinkers that they were, and worship the Lord. Heavenly Father, your word speaks to our heart's deepest needs. Change our hearts, Lord, if we've been critical or skeptical or a people known for complaining or a people that have jostled for position and desired names and titles and authority and wanted to take the first seats instead of the last. Teach us what it is to become a servant of all. Help us to practice that at home. Lord, when a wife says, you know, I'll do the dishes and we can go to bed, that the husband in the house would say, no, you sit down and put your feet up. I'll take care of the dishes. We would just learn to be servants, Lord. That we would take it upon ourselves as the highest title we could ever aspire to. Servants of the living God. We are your children. We have been saved, reclaimed, and our eyes have been opened like Bartimaeus's were. Help us to walk in that freedom. Help us to pray in a godly fashion, not a selfish one. Help us to divorce ourselves from the things of this world and to cut it off once and for all. Jesus said, if my right hand offends you, cut it off. My right eye offends, gouge it out. Nobody walked around with one eye and one limb, but they caught the lesson to prioritize life. Be priority one in my life. Always, Lord Jesus, be priority one in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. And help us to stop running the rat race that Satan puts in our path. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many take it. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And but a few find it. We have found it. We thank you for it, Lord Jesus. We were not looking for you. You came looking for us. 
We love you. We praise you. We worship you, Father. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.